All right, Second John, one chapter book, of course. I want to talk to you about the first eight verses this morning, and then we're going to finish some thoughts on this book tonight uh, when we think about the Lord's table and before we take that. John speaks about the truth, of course, aletheia, as Howard reminded us. And there's no doubt that in the day in which we live, the truth is under attack. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon, even in the day in which we live. Uh, the 20th century as a whole, uh, the truth has been under attack. From the first part of the century, when liberalism told us that the Bible is not the Word of God, and we cannot know those kinds of things, we can't know miracles and things like that, to the 1960s, when there was just a rebellion against everything, against truth and all of those who possess truth, to the to the postmodernism of the of the 80s and 90s when we were told there's no such thing as absolute truth. Now to the millennial generation where uh, uh, anything that's old can't be truth and uh, we cannot really abide by um, originalists and those who think we should go back and find the truth in history. There's a suspicion of history, a suspicion of writing, a rejecting of absolutes. And we know that that's going on today, and it's going to go on throughout the 21st century. And I think God's people uh, need to be aware of that and need to have a good, solid foundation in their mind and in their hearts because of this. Tonight, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. This is a visible statement of historical truth. We're going to do something uh, by, that is symbolic, that uh, symbolizes something that actually happened. And it must have happened. As a matter of fact, all Christianity depends on it if that did not happen. Was Jesus Christ really in the flesh? Was he God in the flesh? And if he was, did he shed real blood from a real body on a real cross? For our real sins. Is that truth or is that not truth? We're going to symbolize it tonight. But if what we're saying is we can't know those things for sure, we can't really know what happened in history and the rest, then we may be in trouble. The fact is, it is the truth. And if that is the truth, then it is the only way to God. No wonder Jesus could say, I am the way and the truth and the life. Because those things are true, and they have to be true. You know, there may, there may be many ways to see God's truth, and we uh, have talked often about uh, these things. We can look at God's world and the things that he made, and we can see the beauty of it and the uniqueness of it. And uh, the Bible tells us we can discover uh, a lot about God by doing that. Uh, you may be a gardener and like to see the way uh, things grow. You might be a nature lover, a bird watcher, or whatever. Uh, you know, I kind of like to, to work with wood, even though I'm not very good at it. But, you know, it, it's something God grows, something he makes. And when you do something unique with it, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, the same thing with many of the elements in, in God's world. Even age itself uh, has a certain hindsight to it that you didn't realize when you were younger. And you learn things when you grow older uh, because uh, of age. Of course, we know we learn from Scripture. 
and we believe and hold on to the fact that God gave us this word, and it is God's word, and we have more proof of it than any other natural writing in the world. It gives us history, wherever it speaks of history, wherever it speaks of science, those things are true, but it speaks of eternal life and of salvation, and we know that that is true. And you and I have experienced salvation. Something happened to you that moment when you turned your life over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin was forgiven and fellowship with God uh, became true. And at that moment, you became a new creature in Jesus Christ. And everyone for the last 2,000 years who have come to God have come that same way. From Saul of Tarsus, who immediately was uh, transformed from a persecutor and a murderer into the great apostle Paul to Augustine, to Luther, to John Newton, to whoever we might want to say, all of us have come that way. We've known the truth that way, and no one can take that from us. And so John, being at the end of the first century, you know, John writes uh, five books of the Bible. He writes his, his Gospel John, which we are often reading out of, then these three letters or epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we call them, and then, of course, the great book of Revelation. All of these were written in the 80s and 90s. Remember that Jesus died in 32, maybe 33 A.D., so it's been a long time. John has seen a lot. John has to be near 100 years old, somewhere at that age, and God uses him and all that he has seen and all that he loves about the truth to write this epistle to us. So, if you have a bulletin and you follow these three uh, points, uh, you're welcome to do that, but they're not hard to see. First of all, I want to talk about the truth in the first three or three and a half verses, then the commandment that God has given us concerning the truth, and the deception about this truth. So as we begin in verse 1, it's kind of an unusual uh, statement here in Second and Third John as he begins the book. First of all, he calls himself the elder. We know this is John. We know he wrote these letters, but he calls himself the elder. And this word is used in two different ways in the New Testament. Both can apply to John. First of all, elder often means old, and John was old, uh, nearly 100 years old by now, you remember. He was probably the youngest of those 12 disciples, but he was not that much younger than Jesus himself, and Jesus was born in 4 B.C., so now it's, it's in the 90s. Uh, John's getting pretty old himself, so he can, he can call himself the elder here in that sense. And also then elder is used sometimes to refer to the leaders of the churches, uh, pastors, uh, some apostles can call themselves elders, and so forth. And so there's no doubt that he does this. Look at, to your right to Revelation, for example, in chapter 1 and verse 1 of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God, and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, and of all things that he saw. This is the same John. Look down at verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle of, uh, that is called 
Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of, of Jesus Christ. He's suffering in his older age. In a book later than when he writes 2 John, he's still serving God and he's still God's servant. So we know this John. We've known him for a long time. He's the last living apostle uh, and will live even beyond these years, a, f a few more years. Then he writes to, back in our text, the elect lady. This is kind of a, an interesting uh, statement here in 3 John, where he also calls himself the elder. He's going to write to a person uh, named Gaius, calls him the well-beloved Gaius. But we don't know about this elect lady exactly what this is or what it means. There's three or four common uh, theories or views about who this is and what it might mean. There are some who believe that what, what John means here is that he's writing to a church, and he uses the term lady, curia. You know, curios is the word Lord, but if you put a feminine ending on it, curia, uh, you have this word. And the word ecclesia ends in ah, that's a feminine ending also. So often the church is referred to as a she, as a her, right? So uh, here he could be writing to the church and her children, <laughs> those that have been saved and those that have come to know the Lord as this church is growing. Probably some church around Ephesus in Asia Minor where John was living at the time where Patmos is just off the, off the coast. That's one, that's, that's one view. Another is that, that, that the expression lady comes from curia, lord, lordus, you might say, but that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Martha. And so in Greek, he could actually be writing to someone named Martha. That's one view, though we wouldn't know exactly who that is here. Another view that I kind of like, but it can't be proved either, is that John was instructed to take care of the family of Jesus. I read one author who even thought that maybe Mary could still be alive at this time. I kind of doubt that uh, because even John, you know, being Jesus' age and Mary being the mother of Jesus, that would be pretty hard. But Jesus had brothers and sisters, and John was instructed to take care of them also. And notice at the very end of this epistle, verse 13, he says, the children of thy elect sister greet thee. So one view is that he's referring to the female members of, of Mary and, and Joseph's kids. That could be but it'd be hard to, to prove. So the fourth view is actually the most common view, and that is that there was a lady in the churches, and in this particular church he's writing to, that was very well known, uh, that was influential in the church, faithful lady uh, of God, and he simply refers to her as the elect lady. A believer, of course, the, the word elect means. And uh, he says, whom I love and thy children and her children, whom I love. And uh, someone pointed out, just so that you don't take that the wrong way, if he was trying to express some type of feeling that he had for this lady, he would have used the word phileo, which would have given that, but he uses the word agapao from 
agape, which is a divine kind of love. So it really is kind of like we often say, I love you in the Lord, you know, uh, I love your walk in the Lord and so forth. And that's, of course, what he's saying here. So it's a very personal letter uh, to this lady uh, and her children and is to be shared, of course, in the whole church, the whole uh, family of God. Then he says, uh, not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. Now, John is going to emphasize the truth here. And so he says in verse two, for the truth's sake, as Howard says, that word truth is aletheia. And I borrowed that word for a paper that, that I write. It's been borrowed for a lot of different uh, reasons. It's, it's like the word agape. It's one of those Greek words that we kind of know and use a lot. But notice about this truth, it dwells in us. And it shall be with us forever. What is that truth? This is the truth of God, right? This is the truth that we know about eternal life. This is the truth about things that have existed and exist now and will exist. Things that exist in eternity that have nothing to do with this earth. All of this truth is God's truth. And we love it. And it dwells in us as believers. Do we understand sometimes the unique position that we have as living beings on this earth at this time? That we possess a truth that the world doesn't possess, doesn't know, doesn't even care about. We possess it because we know God. What a unique thing. What a wonderful thing that is. And it will be with us forever because we will live with God forever. And we will learn more and more about God throughout eternity and more and more about this truth. We don't know everything. We're finite human beings. Our mind can't stand it if we know everything. Uh, although sometimes I'm told, you know, that oh, you know everything, don't you? You know, kind of like uh, you know it all. <laughs> we, we call each other that, but if we're so far from that, we don't even use 10% of our brain. We don't know hardly anything, but we're going to know more and more as we go throughout eternity. And let me, let me go into um, verse 3 a little ways too then. He says, grace be with you, mercy and peace. Very typical words used throughout by the different Bible writers. From God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. I think there's kind of a special emphasis here on that. And that is the truth lies in the Godhead. With God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that's where truth originates. That's what truth is. That's where all truth comes from. That's where everything that has been made comes from. That's where you and I come from. Go back to 1 John to your left a page, and notice how when John begins this epistle, let me just read 3 to 5 in 1 John 1. In verse 3 he says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, and here's why, that you also may have fellowship with us. And notice this, truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light in him is no darkness at all. Let me go one more verse. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, notice this statement. We have fellowship one with another. 
I think that statement has to mean with God. We have fellowship with God. And John's saying, I'm writing these things so that you can have the fellowship with us that we have with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Theologians sometimes equate the love of God with the Spirit himself so that the the love that is within the Godhead between the Father and the Son is personified in the Holy Spirit, i.e. agape love. And when we dwell in love, true love, we dwell in that fellowship with God the Father, God the Son. And this is where the truth lies. And we can't have that fellowship, can't have that love, is where he's going, of course, in this passage, without the truth about who God is and who his Son is. And if we don't have that truth, we're not going to have that love, and we're not going to have that fellowship. So he starts off with these kinds of statements, and they're important statements. John saw a lot in his first century. As a matter of fact, he saw, or he heard, I should say, Jesus pray in John 17 when he says, Sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. John heard them say that. And here he will talk about, verse 4, walking in the truth. As a matter of fact, in 3 John, when he says in verse 3, I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. What parent or grandparent hasn't said that often? What, what greater joy comes to your heart? and children and grandchildren walking in truth. Let me emphasize that a little bit. As a matter of fact, I did a little bit of writing down out of a concordance, easy to do. But the, the word to walk here is a word that, that is used, and as a matter of fact, we have it translated in Ephesians fine as see that you walk circumspectly. Because the word parapateo, P-E-R-I, parapateo, means use your feet to walk around, perimeter. So if you, if you had a circle here and you're going to walk that circle, you're going to put one foot in front of the other very carefully on that line as you go all the way around. See that you walk around carefully. Walk circumspectly. Well, you, you know that the Bible uses this word then in a lot of ways to describe how we live our Christian life. Let me give you a few. We walk in the day, not in the night, John 11. We walk in newness of life, Romans 6. We walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, Romans 8. We walk by faith, not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5. We walk in the spirit, not in the flesh, Galatians 5. We do not walk carnally as men, 1 Corinthians 3. We do not walk in craftiness, 2 Corinthians 4. We do not walk disorderly, 2 Thessalonians 3. But we walk worthy of our calling, Ephesians 4. We walk worthy of the Lord, Colossians 1. We walk in love, Ephesians 5. And we walk honestly, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And probably could add more to that list than that. And so walking circumspectly for us to walk in the truth 
is to do all of these things in our Christian life. And we do that because we have the truth, we have the Word of God, and we're able to walk circumspectly, walking in the truth. So the first thing that he talks about here is truth. Secondly, he talks about the commandment of it. So again, in verse 4, I rejoice greatly that I found of children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. We have received a commandment from the Father. Let me note, by the way, in, the, in this short epistle of just 13 verses, he mentions truth five times, and he mentions the commandment four times. So these words are very important to him, truth and the commandment about the truth. Notice how he said it with that little word, as. As we have received a commandment from the Father. What is the commandment then? To walk in truth. This is the commandment. You can't even know love without walking in the truth. And you can't know God without walking in the truth. Donald Burdick, a, a commentator, said it this way, John explains that the love of which he speaks in verse 5 consists of walking after his commandments. Love reveals itself in obedience. Or as the Apostle Paul said, love is the fulfilling of the law. And so we, what did the Lord command us that John is repeating here? Keep my words. Walk in this truth as we have received a commandment from the Lord. Now, in verse 5, he says, Now I beseech thee, lady, again he uses the same term, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that, or you might even say, in order that, we love one another. Old and new commandments. Go back to 1 John again, because a lot of these, these wordings he repeats in, in these three epistles. In 1 John 2 and verse 7, read these similar words. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you. It always seems strange to me because he is writing the New Testament, you know. But an old commandment, which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Verse 8, again, a new commandment I do write unto you, which thing is true and in him and in you. Notice, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. What I think he is clearer in the book of 1 John is that he's speaking about, in a very broad sense, what we, what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. What he's call, talking about is the scripture that you have had for a long time and the new revelation that came to you through Jesus Christ and since then. We're not writing anything different. We're not inventing anything ourselves. You have had that old commandment, those old words, which are God's words and true words, and now you have the new light that has come, the light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the incarnation of God, the new truth that you as believers have taken into all the world. Again, it dwells in you. And you are, you are examples of the truth. You share the truth that you have in God. So this old truth and new truth is nothing new. 
And yet God is giving revelation, of course, as, he's, as the Bible writers are inspired and in writing it down and the New Testament is being put together, uh, that becomes a new covenant, a new revelation, a further revelation. doesn't contradict anything that was said in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, it completes it and puts a capstone on it. And so this old commandment, new commandment you have. And so I think in our text, in 2 John verse 5, he's emphasizing that again to this lady so that she understands that. But let me pick up the last of verse 5 and verse 6, that we love one another in order that we love one another. This is love, that we walk after his commandments. Notice the plural now, commandments. And this is the commandment then, as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. So we have this loving one another. And again, do we have a commandment to love? Yes, we have a commandment to love. And we have that uh, from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, that by this you shall, men shall know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. But how can we have love one for another if we don't have the truth to walk in? How do we love one another as brothers? Maybe we're just passers-by in the night. Maybe we're just, you know, fellow creatures upon the earth. How do we love one another in the biblical sense? We do that because we hold a common truth. And this truth is expressed in the commandments of God. All the way back to Genesis, all the way forward to Revelation, we have the commandments of God, the truth of God. And as you and I believe them together... We love one another. We love in this truth, you might say. That's an important concept. Kenneth Wiest in his commentary said, Divine love produced in the heart by the Holy Spirit is the motivating factor that impels saints to observe the commandments of God. We love one another. We share a truth together. Tonight again, as I said, we're going to have the Lord's, the Lord's Supper there are two ordinances to the Lord's Supper, or excuse me, to, uh, that we have, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Consider both of those. Ordinances are symbols that have become commandments to us to observe. And we have two of them. We're to observe the baptism. We're to observe the Lord's Supper. These are symbols of truth, that, of things that you and I could not do for ourselves, but God can do for us. And so we have this symbol of baptism. What does it mean, death, burial, and resurrection? Do you believe it? The world doesn't always. The world doesn't believe that Jesus died for their sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. But you do. And when you go into the water of baptism, that is what you are saying loud and clear. I accept this truth. I believe this truth. I've applied this truth to my life. And then tonight at the Lord's table, we will have two symbols, one of his flesh and one of his blood. One of his body, one of the blood. Do you believe that, that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh? When you take that cracker and, and you eat it, you are reminded that he had a real body. He came in the flesh. 
And when you drink that juice, you're reminded that that body had real blood and that blood was really shed for you. Only believers can appreciate these things. <laughs> that's why, it's, that's why it's an, these are ordinances of the church. And that's why non-believers have no part in them. And we have to say to non-believers, no, you can't be baptized until you know this truth. That's why we don't believe infants should be baptized, right? They have no way of, of, of accepting the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as truth. No sense in baptizing that or anyone else who has refused that truth. And when we come to the Lord's table, we try to make it clear that it's for believers so that they uh, have experienced this truth. And when they take these two elements, they are, they are fellowshipping with us about this truth. That is important. You know, uh, priority to truth is seen in, in the Lord's statement, give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's, right? And, and how, how we have priorities to our truth. We can do what we can in this world and we can give what we can give to people and authorities and the rest, but God is our final authority. And when God speaks, we will do that, regardless of the price or regardless of who might disagree with it. You know, it's, it's right of believers to, there's a point with issues in our culture, for example, abortion, where we say abortion is murder, and, and God told us that we cannot commit murder. And so I cannot perform this abortion because it is murder. I heard a discussion this week, as you have heard these all along on radio, uh, two people talking about this and one supporting it, one not. But for the life of me, even the one saying that they, uh, that they were against abortion, it was more, I don't know, kind of like uh, because uh, if that's the choice you want to make, make it. But, but the scripture tells us this is a life. This is an eternal soul. No matter how early, but at conception, that is an eternal soul that will live somewhere forever, either in heaven or in hell, if it grows to the age of accountability. You don't take a life that is made in the image and likeness. That life is in the image and likeness of God. And people murder it on purpose. Now, that's wrong. And people stand against it, rightfully so. The same as you would stand against same-sex marriage, which, again, is against God's eternal truth. It is wrong. You should not do it. Some believers stand up for gun control. I don't know if that's a biblical thing, but, hey, it, you know, uh, in this country, that's a Second Amendment. That's something that uh, you can stand up for. All those things we might say are good. You give unto Caesar where you can, but you've got to give unto God what is God's. But you know what? There is culture in God, too. So give unto the culture the things that belong to culture, but give unto God the things that belong to God. Can you go to that point and say, I'm sorry, my language, though it may be acceptable in the culture, is not acceptable to God, and I will not talk that way. Can we do that? Can we say, even though my immodesty might be accepted in the culture, it is not acceptable to God, and I will not dress that way. Can we do that? Can we be as, can we be as, 
as, as insistent of that as we are of the moral things that we say to Caesar and to God? Can we say my attendance to the Lord's house is important and I will not forsake it? Can we say my separation from this world is truth and I will not forsake it? I'm just saying, let us apply all the word to all of our lives and let's walk in the truth in those areas where we need to walk. So here's the truth. Here's the commandment. There's a deception out there. And John cannot, of course, leave this off in verses 7 to 8. For many deceivers are entered into the world. Deceivers, planoi, shooting stars <laughs> that, that go into the blackness and darkness forever, as, as Jude and Peter will say. These deceivers, they will lead you astray. And they've gone out into the world. Interesting, isn't it? In one century, probably writing this in the, in, the, in the 80s of the first century, Jesus having died in the 30s, and already he says many deceivers are gone out into the world. Sometimes we think even in the day and age we, we live in, there's not very many deceivers out there. By the end of the first century, with the apostles still alive and eyewitnesses of, of the resurrection of Christ still alive, there were deceivers everywhere. Go back to 1 John again. This time, go back to uh, uh, chapter 2 and, and verse 18. Little children, he says, it is the last time or the last hour. All of this age of grace is the last hour. And you have heard that Antichrist, singular now, the Antichrist shall come. That's true, he's going to come. Even now are there many antichrist plural whereby we know that it is the last time they went out from us but were not of us and had they been of us they would no doubt have continued with us but they went out that they might be manifest that they were not of us look down to verse uh, or chapter four of this same little book in verse three every spirit that confesseth not that jesus christ is come in the flesh is not of god this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come and even now already is in the world. What is the spirit of Antichrist? Go back to our text in 2 John, verse 7. These deceivers have entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an Antichrist. And folks, throughout even the 20th century alone, we have had all kinds of expressions of this anti-Christ spirit, that Jesus Christ was not virgin born, that he was not God in the flesh. Uh, this goes all the way back to the first century of what was called Gnosticism, or what we call Gnosticism now, the Docetic Gnosticism, that, that Jesus didn't have a physical body. They believe that God was so holy and man was so sinful that there is no way that the holiness of God could ever contact the sinfulness of anything physical. The world, the flesh, all of that is so sinful that if God contacted it, it would contaminate God. And so they believed that Jesus was God, but he did not have any physical existence. You saw it, but you thought you saw a body, but it really wasn't a body. And that was 
alive and well in John's day and very well may be uh, first on his mind when he says something like this. But we've had many other expressions of this error that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh. And you know what? We call it the incarnation. We call it Christmas. And we call it Easter when that same flesh comes back to life. We believe that Jesus Christ was in the flesh. What if, what if he didn't come in the flesh? What if God, what if those kinds of teachings are true? And by the way, when we have in our day and age this push to say, why do we only have these 66 books in the Bible? Why do we only have these 27 in our New Testament? What about the Gospel of Thomas? What about the Gospel of these other things? You know why they want those in the Bible? Because those deny that Jesus came in the flesh. And when those mix with the Bible, we will not have these doctrines of the incarnation of the flesh, of, of God into flesh. The devil has always wanted that. He was successful in the first century. He's successful in the, in the age of grace. What if God did not come in the flesh? We have no virgin birth, do we? Why worry about it at Christmas time? Why worry about it as a doctrine? We have no, no cross upon which a sinless sacrifice died if we don't have Christ come in the flesh. We don't have a bodily resurrection. We don't have a bodily ascension. Neither will we have a bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ if Jesus Christ is not in the flesh. And so you see when John emphasizes this, it's not just one little part of systematic theology over here. It's everything in our theology, in our salvation. To deny this is to deny the truth of Christianity and to throw our faith out the window, or you might say, make it like every other religion in the world, rather than this unique religion where we can say he is the way and the truth and the life. Because he came in the flesh, there's no other way to God except through him. Verse 8 then, a, a more personal note to the elect lady and to the readers of this epistle, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. There's no reward for false doctrine. Can we lose our salvation? Is that what he's saying of here? I see you shaking your head no, and rightfully so. Of course not. And that's not what he's saying. But though you keep your salvation, you can lose reward for believing false doctrine especially for propagating false doctrine, even as a believer in Christ. Be careful, John says. Don't lose your reward by allowing false doctrine to come into your life and perpetuating it. You can lose your reward. As a matter of fact, there's a couple verses that are very similar to this. Colossians 2.18, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, which was Gnosticism as well, intruding into those things which we, he had not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. Or Revelation 3.11 to, the, to, to uh, the church at Philadelphia, Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast that which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. 
the danger of losing our rewards if we do this. And we can do it by helping those who don't have the truth. And I want to reflect on that as it re relates to the Lord's Supper later this evening. But, but look with me uh, quickly at verse 10. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Don't say God bless you. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is fellowshipper, co-mingler, partaker of his evil deeds. This is a secondary separation. <laughs> For those who say God bless to wrong doctrine, don't you say God bless to them. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, night when we were attacked at 9-11 and President Bush at the time said, if you're going to be a friend of Al-Qaeda's, you're going to be an enemy of ours. It's kind of the old statement, the enemy of my enemy, if the enemy of my enemy is my friend, then the friend of my enemy is my enemy. <laughs> well, in doctrine, it's somewhat the same thing. We cannot say God bless to those who are promoting false doctrine. Be careful that we don't lose our reward even in these things. I titled this message, The Love of the Truth. The Love of Truth. And I hope that we understand it's not the love of success, it's not the love of popularity, it's not the love of being loved, it's not the love of being appreciated or the love of reward. But it's the love of the Word of God, the love of Jesus Christ as the incarnate God in the flesh, the love of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and of those who love it, brethren. Brothers and sisters in Christ. The book of Revelation uh, addresses the churches there and in, in chapter 2, verse 13. Hold fast. You have those that hold fast and have not denied my name. In 2.24, the rest that you have there have not known the depths of Satan. Or 3.4, you have a few names who have not defiled themselves with the heirs and so in 3.10, just keep my word. Blessed are they who keep my word and have not denied it. For the love of truth, John writes to us about. I hope that we take heed. I hope that we do it. Stand out with me, if you will. As we stand and go to the Lord in prayer, we're going to sing a song of invitation to let the Lord speak to our hearts in the way that he wants. And we should respond in the way that he wants to. Let's bow our heads together. Father, heaven, how we love you, how we love Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and desire to have fellowship with you. Father, then keep us in truth. Keep us in what you have revealed to us. Keep us in the love of the truth. Help us to walk circumspectly in all of the ways of our lives and all that we do that we might be pleasing to you and be acceptable in your sight. And so, Father, I pray now you'd speak to our hearts, and we've heard John's words to the elect lady, but we know it's written to us too, the elect of God, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may we also be convicted by these things, drawn to you, if we have put other things in front of your truth 
and in front of the truth of the Lord Jesus. Father, show us those things. Convict us about it. Help us to confess them. And Father, draw us to you in the way that we need. Assure our hearts, and may you be glorified by it all. Well, thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we